as we open God's Word, as we come to the last sermon in the book of 1 Samuel, I want to ask you if you have any I told you so stories. At our house, our kids occasionally engage in playing more roughly with each other, or at least according to our standards, they appear to be playing more roughly with each other. And uh, they will normally get a warning uh, from us, from the parents, um, that if they continue playing rough with each other, it is possible that they will get hurt. And usually, the warning gets ignored. And the rough playing continues until one of them does get hurt. And then in our minds, in my mind, there's that I told you so moment. Can you think of a time when you might have given advice uh, to someone or perhaps even a caution about a particular situation that they might be uh, facing and uh, they don't take your advice or caution seriously. And then it happens. And what you warned them about turns out to be the case. And they come to realize that they should have heeded your advice or warning. Or perhaps it was the other way around. You were on the receiving side of the caution and the warning. And you didn't heed the advice. But you ignored it. And then the trouble and the grief came. A few months ago, I reconnected with an old uh, seminary friend, classmate. His name is Jim Powell. He shared the story of his son wanting to run a 10K race with his grandfather. His grandfather has been training for the race and uh, was running at a slower pace but at least he trained for it. The grandson didn't train for it. He thought he could run the 10K, and he thought that he could outpace his grandfather in the race. In addition, his father gave him the caution and the warning. Don't run fast. Take it slow. And when the big day of the race came, the grandfather started slow as he was trained to do, and the grandson started as well. And despite the warning that his dad gave him, the, the son began running fast and confident. He will definitely crush his grandfather in the timing of this race. But long before the finish line, the son collapsed and had to abandon the race and called his father to come and pick him up. When the son called the father to come and pick him up, there was that I told you so moment in the father's mind, even if those words were never spoken. Do you have I told you so 
moments that you can think of, perhaps over lunch, talk to those that you're going to have lunch with and share some I told you so stories. Well, the text we are about to read is a grand I told you so story, even though those words are not found in the book, in the text we're about to read. Would you open God's word to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 31? We'll be reading from verse 1 to 13. 1 Samuel chapter 31. This is the last sermon in the series uh, that we have been working through in the book of 1 Samuel. And here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and his, all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to the strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Yabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the violent men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Yabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Yabesh and fasted. Seven days. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Let's pray. Father, you have inspired even these words to be writ written for our edification. 
And we pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you'd strengthen me in the preaching of this word. I pray that you would soften our hearts so that we may hear for the glory of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. This is the last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. The story of Saul ends here. It's a tragic story for Saul. It's a tragic story for Israel. No happy notes in this chapter. But there are important notes for us to hear. Because in this chapter, in this I told you so moment, there are some great truths for us to learn that we don't learn except when things go really bad. And this chapter is one of those moments when things go really bad. What is the great lesson for us to learn in this great I told you so moment of the book? And the lesson could be stated in three words. No other king. No other king. I told you so. Saul's reign was characterized by the motto, there is no king but me. My words are more important than God's words. But it's not just Saul who said, no king but me. In this book, the very people of Israel have told God earlier in their story, earlier in the, in the book, we don't want God to be our king. We want a king like the nations. We want a king to be like the nations, who would fight our battles, who would protect us from our enemies, who would lead us. They rejected God as their king and instead asked for a human king. And now at the end of the book, there is a contrast between the king that Israel rejected back in chapter 8 and their first king who ruled by the laws of no other king but me. Now, it might be helpful for us, since it is the last sermon of the, of the series, to refresh ourselves with the whole book. We began the series early on, stating that the series could be summarized in the following way. From the chaos of self-rule to the king after God's own heart. But the king after God's own heart is a king who esteems God and his word, and therefore does what he says. But this book has shown us that Saul would not be that kind of a king. 
if we look at the closing of this book, this last chapter closes not with a king after God's own heart, but with great chaos and tragic events. That's because Israel's first human king chose a path of self-rule. This is where self-rule eventually leads to chaos and tragedy. The book started with an empty womb, with Hannah's empty womb, with her pain, and yet in the midst of her pain, with her turning to the Lord, and with a wonderful response from the Lord to fill her emptiness. What the Lord did for Hannah was supposed to be a, a picture of hope of what the Lord could do for, for his entire people if only they would turn to him. But the book ends with a tragic emptiness at a national scale. Israel's army is killed. Israel's cities are left empty to be occupied by the Philistines. And Israel's throne is left empty by Saul's death. In the early parts of the book, the author told us of the spiritual corruption of Israel's priests. God judged them, and God judged his people for their sins early on in chapter 4. But God also raised up Samuel to be his prophet, to lead his people back to the Lord, and to help them live in his ways, not their ways. At the end of Samuel's life, the people, however, asked Samuel for a king to be like the nations. This was a big moment in their history. God exposed their intentions. They were rejecting God as their king. And God warned them that the king they are asking for would not provide for his people, but would take from them. Remember chapter 8, the warnings of chapter 8? What the king will do for them? He will take, he will take, he will take. But the elders refused to hear the warning. So God gave them what they asked for. And now the last chapter of the book shows the high price tag for wanting a king to be like the nations. And then Saul, after he was installed as king, he was supposed to submit himself to the word of God as ministered to the prophet Samuel. Saul reign, Saul's reign would have been established if he followed God's direction wholeheartedly. But Israel's first human king turned quickly against the word of the Lord. Saul's words and plans became more important than God's words and plans. And instead of submitting to God's reign through his word, Saul sought to establish and protect his reign at all cost. And God decreed as early as chapter 15 that he will remove the kingship from Saul and instead give that kingship and throne to his neighbor. But Saul didn't believe it. 
Saul thought that he could go on protecting his throne and, and, and work against God's plans and God's decrees. And then comes chapter 28, when Saul finally is deeply frightened by the enemy, by the Philistines. And God speaks through the words of Samuel again and reminds Saul that what is about to happen is in conformity with what God has spoken back in chapter 15. And in today's text comes a big moment when we get to see if what God said would happen would really happen. To see if God's word is really true. Now in the second half of this book, we have seen a contrast between Saul and David. That's because there was a tension from Saul, mounted from Saul against David. Saul was constantly seeking to put David to death. Because again, Saul thought that he could protect his throne. But behind the tension between Saul and David, there was another tension, a deeper tension. It was between Saul and the Lord. And this last chapter of the book sets a contrast between Saul and the Lord. God was the king Israel had rejected back in chapter 8. Saul was Israel's first king. And he rejected God. Whose authority will prevail? Whose word will come true? God had warned Israel about the king they wanted despite his warnings. God had warned Saul about who is truly sovereign despite the fact that Saul ignored God's warnings. And as we look at the text today, as we look at the theme of no other king, we're going to be learning, and the passage is pointing to two main truths for us to consider in this contrast between Saul and the Lord. And point number one, whose word is really going to come true? Point number one, Saul's last command and wish were not fulfilled. Saul's last command and wish were not fulfilled. Again, remember, the setting of this book and up to this point in the chapter is who is truly going to be reigning and king over God's people? Whose word really has authority? And the first point we see is Saul's last command and wish were not fulfilled. We see it in the first four verses of the, of the chapter. From the very first verse, the narrator tells us quickly that the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell on Mount Gilboa. And then in verse 2, we read that the Philistines caught up with Saul and his sons and, and were able to kill all three of his sons together and wound Saul really badly. At this point, the narrator captures a dialogue between Saul and his servant, his armor-bearer. Look at that dialogue in verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, 
draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. This was was Saul's last command. Let that sink in. This was King Saul's last command that he uttered as a king. The king who would would think that he could oppose God's word and ignore his authority is now asking his servant to kill him. And his servant refused to obey his command. It is ironic that his last command, Saul's last command that he gives as king, is not being obeyed. And rightly so. The path of self-rule leads to chaos, to utter emptiness, to a loss of authority, and eventually to self-destruction. It was not only Saul's command that was not fulfilled, but also his wish was not fulfilled either. The reason Saul asked his servant to kill him was so that the Philistines would not mistreat Saul's body. But what Saul feared feared for his body is what the Philistines ended up doing anyway. In verses 8 through 10, we are told that the next day the Philistines came to strip the slain bodies on the battlefield, and they found Saul and his three sons, and they mistreated his body. Verse 9, we read that they cut off his head. It's not the first time in this book when this happened to someone. It happened earlier to Dagon, the Philistine god, when the Ark of the Covenant had been taken captive and brought in the temple of Dagon, remember how the statue was found fallen and Dagon's head was broken from his body. And then it happened again in the middle of the book to Goliath, the Philistine that David had killed. And now it happens again. But it doesn't happen to the Philistine God. doesn't happen to the Philistine giant man. It happened to the Israelite king, Saul. The tall king of Israel has the same fate as Goliath. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, a passage that speaks of the same incident, we're told that the Philistines placed Saul's head in Dagon's temple. It was a symbolic act of showing that the Philistines subjugated Israel's king. The king who would want to be king by himself, to rule apart from God's word, now has his head brought to be among the trophies of the Philistine gods. But that's not all. It doesn't stop there. 
the Philistines took Saul's body and the bodies of his sons and fastened them to the wall of Bethshan. This was a way of public humiliation and shame. Headless, hanging on a wall. But this act was more than an act of humiliation and shame. It was one of the curses God had given in the law of Moses. Listen to one of the curses that God has given in the law of Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 25 and 26. God said that if his people will turn away from the Lord and reject his word, this is what God will do. Listen to the curse. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. Being hung up on walls was a means of exposing dead bodies for the birds of the air to feed on. And this is exactly what happens to Saul. His death was not merely an ordinary death on the battlefield. He died with all the fingerprints that his death fulfilled the curse of the Mosaic law because Saul had rejected the word of the Lord. Saul's last wish as a king was to somehow die a little early so that he would avoid being mistreated. And his wish, no matter how much he tried, his wish was not fulfilled. And here's the point of these details telling us about how Saul died. Saul's last command and his last wish did not come to be fulfilled. His words fell to the ground. They were not being done even in his death. This is how Israel's first king was removed from the throne, killed and shamed for all to watch. And worse, he died as cursed by God. Also, as a result of this great loss, we read in verse 7 that the people of Israel abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Do you remember the command and the promise God gave to his people to go and occupy the land and take the land as possession? Well, here it seems that even though at the beginning of Saul's reign, he occupied some of the territories, he won some of the battles, eventually the people of God under the reign of Saul lost both their lives and their cities. It's as if this is a reversal 
of the promise and command to occupy the land. Saul ends up doing the, the reversal of that. And then last verse, chapter uh, verse 13, has another bit of irony in it. When the people of Israel recovered Saul's body, they buried Saul's bones under the tamarisk tree in Yabesh. The tamarisk tree. Why that note? Remember, we have seen Saul under the tamarisk tree before in this book. Earlier in chapter 22, the tamarisk tree was a place where Saul ordered his servants to kill the priests at Nob because they had inquired of the Lord for David. Saul was holding his spear and giving commands to order those who have acquired of the Lord for David. And he was doing that under the tamarisk tree. And there, under the tamarisk tree, Doag the Edomite carried out Saul's order because there none of Saul's other servants obeyed him. And now the last verse of this book closes with Saul's bones being under the tamarisk tree. The king who chose the path of self-rule, the king who lived his life with the motto, no other king but me, was no longer able to protect his kingship nor his dynasty. Quite the opposite. He brought shame to, his, to himself, to his sons, and lost part of the land given to the people of Israel. My dear friends, brothers and sisters, consider the lesson from King Saul even in his death. Choosing the path of self-rule never turns out well in the end. It's a path of limited authority. It's a path of a limited authority that has a short shelf life. It has an expiration date. It may not feel exciting to obey and submit to God in the present, in the moment, when other lures seem more enticing for us. But my friends, consider this. When we choose to live our lives according to our words instead of God's words, our words and our authority may be thrilling for the moment, but it will not last. In the end, it proves to be the path of emptiness and self-destruction. On a Sunday like this, when we have honored and prayed for our graduates, I want to speak particular to you. Some of you are going to be moving away. You will no longer be here regularly in this congregation to hear God's word. I pray that the Lord will take you to places where you will find congregations that to submit to the authority of God's word and submit to preach God's word as he has intended it to be spoken.
Some of you will stick around. And, but all of you are moving into a new stage of life. You completed a degree. You got a diploma. The world, whether you're going to be around here or go out somewhere else, the world tells you that nothing could stop you from accomplishing what you put your mind to. Self-determination and self-rule are the two gods our society worships. And it may feel like a great lure to follow these gods. But consider where self-determination and self-rule led Saul. The king who thought his word and authority would be enough and stronger than what God said. Remember also that Saul is the king who feared people more than he feared the word of the Lord. So as you embark in a new season of your life, whether you will stay here in Austin or move away, you will be tempted in various ways to think that you need to fear people and their pressures or to seek their applause and admiration more than fear and seek the admiration of God. I want to encourage you, learn from Saul, even in this big I told you so moment. Fear God more than man. Trust God more than yourself. Because the path of seeking to please people more than God and the path of seeking to rule your life apart from God leads to ruin to emptiness and self-destruction. Point number one, Saul's last command and wish were not fulfilled. His words fell to the ground even in his death. His words proved to be and have no authority. In contrast to Saul, the narrator wants to show us whose words were fulfilled. Whose words truly came through. Who has true authority? It was not Saul, but the Lord. So point number two, the lesson, the second lesson we learned from this last chapter is that God's word was fulfilled fully. God's word was fulfilled fully. Not in part, but fully. This chapter and the context of the entire book includes clues that show us that God's word was fulfilled fully. And the first clue is in verse 6. The author tells us, Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day. Now, why is the author giving and telling us this conclusion. Why is it important for him to highlight this detail that Saul and his sons and his men died together all on the same day? Wasn't that explicit? Wasn't that clear from the text? Why is it a big deal to highlight that? It's a big deal to highlight that because 
This is what God has spoken through the prophet Samuel the day before. In chapter 28, remember Samuel's last words to Saul? Chapter 28, verses 16 through 19. If you have your Bibles open, just flip over to 28, verse 16 through 19. Listen to Samuel's last words to Saul. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he has spoken by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Do you hear, do you hear the timestamp that Samuel has given Saul? And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. This is why it's important for the narrator to tell us that Saul and his sons died on the same day together. It's a way for him to emphasize that God's word was fulfilled. His word stands true and will be accomplished. And it's not the first time in the book when the narrator brings home the truth that God's words through Samuel will not fall to the ground unaccomplished. At the beginning of the book, when Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, the narrator gave us a short summary of what God did through Samuel. Back in chapter 3, verse 19, we read, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And now that truth is once again proven to be true. None of Samuel's words fell to the ground because his words were God's words. God did what he said he would. All that God said through Samuel came to be true for Saul. But it's not just Samuel's words that did not fall to the ground. There is another clue in this book, in the context of the book, which becomes apparent when we, when we remember what we have covered so far. David, when he hears the news that Saul and his people have died, David's reaction is recorded in the next chapter, in, chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And when he hears the news, David doesn't rejoice. He's not jumping up and down full of joy. He says, finally, the throne is mine. Or finally, my persecutor is dead. I can finally live without the threat of death from my persecutor. Oh, no, David instead begins crying, lamenting. He taught Israel to sing a song of lament. And one of the lines in the song is repeated three times. 
It's the line that says, how the mighty have fallen. David was speaking of Saul positively as the mighty one. But remember how this book started. Remember the words spoken by God through Hannah's song of praise. She said early on in chapter 2, verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken. Who are the mighty in this book? We might say the Philistines, the mighty enemies of God's people. And sure, they were at some times in the book. But here at the end of the book, we actually learn that the mighty ones included Saul. Sadly, Saul used his mightiness to compete with God, to ignore his word, to resist his plans. If we had a chance to go back in time and meet Hannah, and if we could have brought to her chapter 31 of 1 Samuel and read to her this story, I wonder if Hannah would have responded, I told you this would happen. God will break down the bows of the mighty. I told you that God will fight against those who are proud. I told you that God will break those who speak arrogantly. I told you that God would be the one who kills and brings down to Sheol. I told you that the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. I told you that the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the mighty sit on thrones, even on the throne of Israel. If the mighty one on the throne of Israel turns against the word of the Lord, God will break down his bows. Because God is a God of reversals, bringing down those who act proudly against him. It does not matter how mighty one gets to become. When one chooses to enter into competition with God, sooner or later, their bows will be broken. And this is Saul's story. He chose to compete with God, to test out whose word is more weighty, to see whose reign is more powerful and more enduring. But you know what else Hannah told us? That the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. If he judged Saul in this way and has executed his judgment against Saul, be assured of this, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And that inv includes you and me. That includes our time as well. Hannah's word, however, did not end merely on a word of judgment, but on a word of assurance. While God will judge the ends of the earth, he will also give strength to his king. No wonder that in the previous chapter, chapter 30, we saw God give strength to David when David was at the end of his strength. Saul is the king whom the Lord killed and allowed to experience a shameful death 
because of his sin and disobedience. But another king would come centuries later, after David, Jesus Christ. The Lord planned for him to be killed with a shameful death through being hung on a tree, crucified, not because of his sin, but because of our sin. And three days later, God rose him from the dead, bringing him to life, just as Hannah prophesied. And today, all those who turn to God through Jesus Christ become part of his kingdom. So if you have not yet turned to the Lord, the God who will judge the ends of the earth, the God who kills and the God who brings to life, oh, friends, I want to encourage you today, trust in Jesus, turn to him, give up trying to live your life as if there is no other king but you. I want to plead with you to turn to the Lord. Surrender yourself by faith in Christ and entrust your life to the one who indeed will bring a great reversal, who indeed will bring down the arrogant and the proud and the mighty. If you think you are that, oh friends, turn to him now. Because those who turn to him, the Lord will exalt. But those who continue to live in the exaltation of their lives, seeking to exalt themselves, the Lord will bring down. God fulfills his word fully, both in judgment and in salvation, both to bring to death and to bring to life. In this chapter, we see God accomplishing his word in judgment against Saul. He will accomplish his word against all those who are proud and arrogant against all those who think that their, that their words are more weighty than God's word. But to all who turn to the Lord today, the Lord wants to give a great reversal because he is the God of reversals. Those who choose to turn to the Lord, the Lord gives life. Not just life in this, in this season, but everlasting life through Jesus Christ because there is no other king. Friends, the message God gives to us through the death of Saul is simply this. No other king. No other king whose word endures forever. No other king whose kingdom will prevail forever. Only God and his word can fit in this category because he is the only true king for his people. The people of Israel have rejected God as their king. Their first king reject, rejected God as his king. Yet God shows us today that his word is weightier than ours, even if for decades we get away with living our lives according to our words. Not one of his words shall fall to the ground. All the reversals he has promised will come true because there is no other king. Who will be king for you? Let's pray.